For a long time, I've been scratching my head about the way some Christians respond to the problems of our world. A lot of what I see and hear about the demise of our culture comes out as scolding the culture. I get emails, read magazines, sometimes phone calls, you probably do as well, from organizations who make scathing accusations against society, and it's all their fault. God's unhappy with the way things are. In fact, God's very unhappy. He's going to come down any minute wreak havoc on these pagans who won't do what God wants them to do. And the subtle implication is that the church has no responsibility and no role for the shape we're in. And I'm not sure it's quite that simple. I mean, there's no doubt the world is a mess. And there's no doubt that God is going to hold people accountable for our behavior. But far too often we are confused about where the responsibility lies. We're confused about God's expectations. We're confused about the ones on whom God makes the most demands. Henry Blackaby said, if society as a whole seems to be getting darker and darker, it's not the problem of the darkness. The darkness is acting like it's nature. It's that the light no longer dispels the darkness. And it's time for the light to say, if things are darker, maybe the problem's with us. See, the thing is, we want pagans to act like Christians... And we would like to be Christians who act like pagans. And I think this is what Paul is concerned about in this section of Scripture that we've just read. In the beginning 16 verses of Ephesians 4, he's talking about the spirit of unity and the commitment of unity that he's desiring in the church. As you move to verse 17, he gets to the heart of why there's so much disunity and chaos and so many struggles. And the reason why... He says that filled with this is because people who are supposed to be different from the world aren't. And so he begins in verse 17. I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He's telling his readers that he's talking about using the term Gentile, not not in a uh, racial sense, but as people who are separated from God, people who live in darkness, people who have nothing to do with God. And he's telling the people that they're called to be different from people who have no relationship with God. The people to whom Paul originally addresses this letter are attempting to live for Christ while they're hanging on to things that are not really about Christ. They want to be Christian, just not that Christian. They want to be saved, but they don't really want to be different. They want to be connected to Christ. They just don't want to be all in for Christ. And Paul says that's not the way it works. And he warns them if, if our pursuit if is anything less than a desire to be all in for Christ, then maybe we really aren't in Christ. We're just sort of playing. He talks about the futility of their thinking. It's this hopelessness, emptiness, meaninglessness. It's the word that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses many times. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. It, it's futile. And, and they can't see that. It's the mindset of people who are disconnected from God, cut off from God, living in darkness, insensitivity, controlled by lust that can never be satisfied in this world. And the people to whom he's writing, you can see them, they're all shaking their heads saying, that's right, Peter, you preach it, that's awesome. Give it to those pagans. And he turns it on them on their ear and says, I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about you. And I'm begging you to stop that because it's killing you. And I suspect they respond the way we do. No, we're not. We're not living like pagans. Look at what we do. 
We come to church, we read the Bible, we say our prayers, we give, we talk about God all the time. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. And he says, well, if you don't believe me, let me refresh your memory about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he summarizes his description in chapter 5, verse 2, as walking like Christ. Not every translation uses the word walking, but that's the word there. That's what it means, walking like Christ. Have you ever noticed that children tend to walk like their parents? You notice that, that resemblance? You probably walk like your parents. Your children, if you have them, probably walk like you. There's something about the gait, something about, you know, the, uh, the, maybe the way you move your arms, the way you hold your head. There's a similarity. And if you see some people walking together and you think, all right, two of them are related, I bet I can tell by how they walk. And Paul is saying followers of Jesus walk like Jesus. There's some connection. There's something, there's some of a relationship, a family resemblance to Jesus. But what does walking like Christ look like? Well, the characteristics of Jesus' walk are once again, as Paul's been talking about basically throughout this letter, it's once again wrapped up in our relationships. Walking with Christ or as Paul is going to say throughout this holiness, is always measured in the context of relationships. The most profound work of the Spirit in us is not how well we practice the spiritual disciplines or how much we know the Scriptures or how well-versed we are in theology or church history, as important as those things are. The most profound test of the Spirit in us is how we treat each other. And all the relational dynamics that Paul mentions here are boiled down to self-centeredness versus Christ-centeredness. And he talks in here about how we view each other. He, He talks about impurity and sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is always rooted in seeing another person as an object. Something, someone we can, who can do something for us. Someone who can, we can use to get what we want. He talks about anger. Paul understands it's human nature to get angry. And not all anger is sin. Jesus gets angry. The difference I've noticed when I read the Gospels is that when Jesus gets angry, it's because something has happened to someone else. He doesn't get angry when things happen to him. And I suspect we tend to flip-flop that. And Paul's saying, looking for something different from us. He talks about stealing, and we're thinking, okay, I get a pass here. I have no plans to rob a bank. I have no plans to, you know, slip out of church while we're here and go to somebody's house and take things. I'm good with that one. What about stealing from God? Are, are we giving the tithe that God requires? Are, are, we, are we giving generously out of how God has blessed us? You think about the faith promise. Is our mindset about that, how little can I give or how much can I give? I, I talk about with couples who are preparing to get married, and one of the things I, I, I try to instill in them is to create a, an atmosphere in your home of generosity. That when people think of you, they think of you as generous people. Because generous people are free, and generous people look like Jesus. It does intrigue me how much Paul talks here about our mouths. Dotted throughout this entire passage are four or five places where he talks about what we say, what comes out of our mouths. And we all know our mouths have great power. Great power to tear down or to build up. Power to put people in their place or to lift them to a higher place. 
We can, we can speak words and cause distress to people or we can speak words and make them feel blessed. And Paul's not saying you can never say a difficult word to someone because the truth, speaking the truth, is, is a big part of what it means to be Christians. We care about the truth and we're concerned about the truth. But what do we say when we speak the truth and how do we say it when we speak the truth? Is our motivation to build up or tear down? Is our motivation redemption or retribution? Is it compassion and support? Or is it vengeance and destruction? Why, do we, why are we saying what we're saying? I, I do find it interesting, Paul's command in chapter 5, verse 19. It's a little bit unusual. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I've read that many times, but all of a sudden it hit me the other day. He's saying to speak to one another with music. And I got to thinking, maybe this is where musicals started. No, maybe this is where all that began. Right? Paul's the one that started it. You know, people engaged in normal conversation, breaking into song. I love musicals. I've been in a lot of musicals. But who does that, right? You know, you're, you're you're at home with your, your spouse. And all of a sudden, you look at her and say, do you love me? And starts the whole thing going, right? Or you got this problem with somebody at work, you don't know what to do, and somebody breaks out and how do you solve a problem like Maria? And don't even get me started on West Side Story. What is that about? Gangs in New York dancing and singing. I, I don't think that really happens, does it? No, we love musicals. And here's the thing I note about that. Those songs get into your head, Right? And you get a song like that into your head and it's hard to forget it. And something is communicated through music that can't be communicated through words alone. And I'm pretty sure that's not, I'm pretty sure Paul is not trying to begin the whole movement of musicals here. But I, I do think there is something about communicating in the spirit of worship. The spirit of, of, the, of the songs and the hymns that we sing to one another when we come together for worship. That spirit of encouragement and joy. I mean, when we sang a minute ago, rejoice the Lord is king. Something about those words ought to permeate what comes out of our mouths. And how we speak to each other and what we say to each other. There ought to be a sense of joy and encouragement and the blessing of God through how and what we say. Paul is concerned about our attitudes in all of this. Our willingness or unwillingness to respond to life and people from a spirit of Christ-likeness rather than self-centeredness. So when people hurt us or disappoint us, he's calling us to respond in a way that is completely different than the pagan mindset. He's calling us to forgive and have compassion To think about the pain that that person might be going through. Their own experiences that are causing them to treat us the way they are. He's calling us to embrace our relationships in the spirit of Christ. To see each other, treat each other the way Christ treats us. With love. Remembering that love's ultimate goal is always spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity. Reconciliation, redemption. How do you know if you're loving someone? Is the desire for whatever you're doing with them or for them that they would grow spiritually through that? Or is it anger, vengeance? 
Love always wants spiritual growth for other people. I read about a church that experienced an amazing movement of God. And out of that, they decided that that love was so important to them that they made two declarations about their church. One was that everything that's done in the church must be done in the spirit of love. And the other was the church doesn't need anything in its life that can't be done in the spirit of love. So if you can't do this in the spirit of love, don't do it. Whatever it may be. Someone said to me the other day, love is not a Christian condiment. It's not just something we lay on the top when we feel like it. It's what God's children pursue. It's who we are. Tim Gombas says, reconciling relationships is not a distraction from the main agenda of the church. It's one of the chief priorities of the church. Loving each other, caring for each other. Because if we can't reconcile our relationships any better than the rest of the world, then what do we have to offer the rest of the world? What are we doing? What's the point? If, if having Jesus doesn't affect how we relate to each other, how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, then either Jesus isn't what he says he is or we don't really have Jesus. No wonder Paul says that our hesitancy to understand this and to grasp this and to be willing to do this grieves the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Spirit twice in this passage. In chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. And on both sides of that, it's about how we're treating each other. And then in 5.18, he says, Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, don't let your mind be controlled by a substance that has such huge potential for bad things to happen, that has such huge potential for you to lose control of your ability to make good decisions. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. We can only walk with Christ if we're willing to be controlled by the Spirit. It's our hesitancy to be controlled by the Spirit that leads to legalism. You know, we, we want rules and instruction. Tell me, do this, do this, do that, do that. And then I have a checklist. And all I have to do is check off the list and, and I'll be fine. I can do that. I can handle that. And then holy living becomes something we do. But God understands that even with the clearest instructions, we can't do it. I think that's Paul's argument in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says that Jesus abolishes in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. He's not demeaning the law of God. He's just trying to help us understand that even something as clear as the law of Moses is corrupted by human beings. We took that perfect law and we twisted it in such a way that it becomes something that doesn't look anything like God intended And Paul's point is that's how we act. What we say, what we do, it's not just a reflection on us. Ultimately, it's a reflection on the spirit that we say is controlling us. No wonder the spirit is grieved. When we claim to be filled with the spirit, and then we treat others in a way that is contrary to Christ, we give people the impression that God doesn't care about how we act. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't, we're no different, he's no different than any other God that any other human beings worship. And we give people the impression that God doesn't care about holiness. About how we live and how we treat each other. 
Now, the truth is, walking like Christ is not easy. This is demanding. And that's why Paul reminds us that living with a spirit of love is not something we generate. It is simply the response of coming to understand how deeply we are loved by God. It's, it's, it's not insignificant that Paul speaks in five one about us being dearly loved children. Or as the message has it, mostly what God does is love you. God doesn't love us because of what we've done. We've heard that lots, right? But God doesn't love us because of the potential we have to do something either. God loves us because that's who he is. If we never change, he loves us. If we refuse to change, he still loves us. He doesn't love us in order to change us. He just loves us. But when we know we're loved, something in us begins to change. And we want Christ and we want to be like Christ. And we want to love people the way Christ loves us. And how does Christ love us? He goes to the cross for us. The cross is the ultimate symbol of Christ's love for us. Sacrifice, humility, and truth. But how in the world do we ever come to the place where we can truly walk like Christ? Paul warns us in verse 15 that the days are evil. We're fighting an uphill battle. We live in a culture that's continually telling us the way to get what you want is to think about me, me, me. You can't worry about other people. Once you get yourself right, then you can start thinking about other people. But it's really all about me. Our culture is continually bombarding us with messages that are completely the opposite of what Christ is calling us to be. How do we deal with that? In the church. We deal with it through the church. In verse 25, Paul reminds us that in the church, we are members of each other. We have a connection together. We care about each other. and We invest in each other. And we learn from to be different people with each other. Being connected in the church is the, gives us the potential for an amazing support network. Particularly when life is pushing in against us. But we don't want to be naive. Being connected to each other also means that we have the potential for conflict and stress and struggle and pain and all the other ways in which we hurt each other and disappoint each other and frustrate each other. And Paul knows that far too well. Nevertheless, Paul understands that if we want to walk like Christ, if we want to be transformed, if we want to be holy... If we want to experience the fullness of God's rich blessings upon us, you can only learn those lessons in the community of the church. So in essence, Paul is saying when stuff happens, don't run, don't hide, work it out. Let your commitment to community take you deeper and make you stronger and teach you to love. I mean, how else do you learn love except in an environment where People need to be loved. We have this image in our mind, I think, that the church ought to be kind of easy and comfortable. But actually, God has the highest expectations for his people. 
God asks the most from his people. God's looking for the deepest responses from his people. Things that he would never ask of people who have rejected him, ignored him, have nothing to do with him. And you can't learn the things of Christ fully on your own. We need each other. And we need to commit to each other and connect with each other. Eugene Peterson says that years ago when he was in graduate school, he had to, he had to pass a competency exam in German. They offered German classes where he was going to school, but he was unable to schedule one and he really needed to get this done. So he decided to get some books and, together and learn German on his own. And um, he had a fair proficiency for languages. And so after a while, he figured he'd come to the place where he understood it enough. And he went to his professor and he said, okay, I'm ready for my test. And in that institution, all the language exams were done informally. So the professor said, all right, come to my office. They went to his office. He pulled a book off the shelf and opened it and said, all right, start reading. And he started reading. He said, all right, now translate it. And he translated it. And he said it was a Syriac grammar. And grammars have you know, limited words, so it's pretty easy. So he got another book, and he said the same thing. He read it and translate it. And he said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I, I think I'm going to get through this. But he said that he noticed that a frown was developing on his professor's face, and it made him feel really apprehensive. And then he took a third book off the shelf, and it was a book on Egyptian history. And he just opened it at random, and he started reading from the top of the page. And he read, and he read. He said it was one of those interminable German sentences that, that halfway down the page, he still hadn't come to a period yet. And he said he lost all connection with the noun and the verb. And finally, he just sort of stuttered to a stop. And the professor interrupted him. He said, Mr. Peterson, where did you learn your German? Well, he was reluctant to tell him. He didn't really want to admit that he had tried to do it on his own. So he didn't say anything. And the professor said, what language do they speak in your house? And he said, well, a little Norwegian. He said, by that I meant on Christmas Day, my aunts and uncles and my mother spoke a little Norwegian around the table. And the professor went on. He said, you have an unusual accent. I can't place it. I'm intrigued by it. And then the professor went off for the next length of time talking about accents. He forgot to ask him to translate anything more. And he said, okay, you're good. You can pass. And he said, that kind of stuff happens all the time. We hear the command, live in love, walk like Christ. And and we're in a hurry to get to the end of it because all we care about is passing the exam. But God has so much more for us to learn and so much more he wants to do in us that's bigger than just passing the exam. It's the relationships that we build with each other. It's the ebb and flow and the give and take and the struggles of being in community with each other. That's how we really learn what it means to love. You can learn a language on your own, but I suspect it will be very difficult for you to exist in a culture that only speaks that language. Because you have to immerse yourself with the people. And if we're going to ever learn what it means to love, or we're going to learn what it means to walk like Christ, we have to do that together. It is God's plan. It is God's way. The church is the primary place that God has given us for learning the language of love. 
And it's one of the central reasons God creates the church. It's the gathering of God's people coming together in order to tell each other about God's love and to encourage each other to be open to the Spirit and to remind each other to walk in the ways of Christ, the realities of life that we just can't do on our own. Because sooner or later, we're going to come to see that people who walk like Christ walk with the limp of love. And sooner or later, we will come to see that walking like Christ is going to mean giving ourselves away, surrendering our lives, submitting to Christ and to others. And we will begin to understand that this is a difficult thing God has called us to. But in the church, and through the power of the Spirit, we have resources that we just don't have on our own. So God is calling us to walk like Christ. That it, would, that it would infuse every part of our being. And he's given us the spirit and he's given us the church to learn. Are we ready to let him teach us? Holy Father, we thank you that you want more for us than just ourselves. That you've got bigger and greater plans for each of us And we ask that you will help us not just to understand what it means to walk like Christ, but to really begin to walk. And wherever we are on the journey, to know the joy of you taking us further along, learning to walk the way Christ does, and living in his presence. Let us be a church Where walking like that is the norm. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.